Welcome back to Forever Leeds, the podcast from the University of Leeds Alumni Department, where we look at life in Leeds past, present and future for everyone who's been to the university or who is thinking of going. I'm Rich Williams. I study politics here and graduated in 2004. And my co-presenter, Alba Goskova, is studying at Leeds right now. Alba, tell everyone, make us all jealous. What's going on at the moment at uni? What have you been doing? How's uni life at the moment? Well, I can't lie, Rich, it's great to be back. I'm actually continuing with my documentary, which is a project for my final year. Just starting to like gather some contributors, find a story and hopefully start filming soon. I'm also doing another podcast for the newspaper, The Griffin. So exciting stuff, really. Excellent. And, and aside from uh, uni work life, what else has been going on? Been to any gigs recently? Seen anything? Stuff going on around the uni? To be honest, not that much recently. It's been quite busy. I went to a couple of gigs last month. I went to Hybrid Minds at the O2 Academy. I loved that. And recently I also went to Shy FX, which was actually great. A little bit of drum and bass. Love that. Very Leeds. Excellent. I always, whenever I drive up to come here and do this, just whenever you see the university buildings, just all those memories flood back of doing those and then I speak to you and do you like you'll like making those memories now which is which is awesome for you and um, what have we got going on on the podcast this time Alba as graduates and students alike know the past couple of years have changed the working world we'll be finding out just how businesses and employees are adapting for life after covid and what more needs to be done it's all in a major survey of employers and workers from Leeds University Business School and one of their leading lights will be joining us to explain it all and Rich is talking to one of his old university friends who has gone on to great things. Isn't that right, Rich? You're absolutely right. I am going to be chatting to uh, Ben Winston. He's a TV producer who was here at uni when I was as well. In fact, uh, he lived in the same student house that my then girlfriend, now wife, was living in. So we spent a lot of time together. Uh, if you've seen The Friends Reunion basically the bigger show on TV over the last year. If you um, have seen anything that James Corden has done, Carpool Karaoke, just to name a few, uh, these are the kind of things that Ben has been executive producing. He moved over to LA a few years ago with James Corden to do the Late Late Show over there. And we had a chat about everything from uh, producing the Grammys to how that Friends reunion came about to life at Leeds Uni as well. So it was really good to catch up with him, uh, catching up with a pal there. That is on the way very soon as as well. And if that's not enough, we've got the story on the original case of fake news, the infamous Cottingley Fairies hoax of 1917, when two young Yorkshire cousins claimed to have taken photographs of actual fairies at the bottom of the garden and managed to con the whole nation, including the creator of Sherlock Holmes, Arthur Conan Doyle. It was the greatest hoax of the century. It's the subject of a Brotherton Library exhibition that's still viewable online, and we'll be finding out about what it all means. Don't forget to follow Forever Leads on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or your favourite podcast app so you can stay in touch with what's happening at the university. And do tweet us at Leeds Alumni. We'd love to hear what you think of the podcast.
Now, you might be getting used to a mixed working environment after the pandemic. Some time at home, some at the office, maybe even shared workspaces or temporary headquarters. But employers aren't reacting fast enough to the flexible working revolution. That's according to a survey of over 1,000 British employees by Leeds University Business School. Investigating changes in the workplace as the UK emerges from COVID-19. Only 22% of participants said their offices had been redesigned to support hybrid working. And only 31% were aware of a formal flexi-hours policy in their organisation. So what does it all mean? What needs to change? We are joined by Dr Matthew Davis of Leeds University Business School, who worked on the survey. Welcome to Forever Leeds. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for... Uh, is this your first time up here on this level, It is, it is, yes. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, and it's nice to see the studio and where you're, uh, you're based. Yeah, well, how have you never been up here before? I don't know, it's shameful. I've been here since 2007, and I've only ever been in the student bars and the refectory. So maybe that's just saying something about where I grabbed. Uh, could could be the case. Now, let's just talk about everything that's been going on, because in terms of working, and this is what you've been looking into, uh, in terms of disruption, you couldn't really have anything more disruptive than the pandemic we've had. So what's what's happened to workplace at the moment? Oh, this has been such an interesting time. So um, challenging for everybody on, on all sorts of levels, but really interesting to see what's been happening uh, with how we, we think about work and, and particularly where we work as well. The pandemic and this really sudden shift to, to home working, um, often, obviously, that came as a surprise for for, uh, for most people. And I think the really interesting thing, talking to the kind of companies and organisations we have been um, as part of our research, is actually quite how quickly they've adapted to this. In particular, lots of firms that never really thought that homeworking might be suitable for their staff or something they could do. Actually, they've, they've changed really quickly and found it successful. So we're now in a position where people are thinking, well, how do we keep hold of some of this? Um, and what does the, the office look like if we're either kind of keeping some people back permanently at home, moving back part-time for others in, in hybrid working? What does the office have to look like now to, to accommodate that? So it's really exciting. That's great to hear. But you found in your survey that only approximately 22% of people said their offices had adapted for hybrid working. So what kind of adaptation is needed? Yeah, so great question. So um, our, our survey, which was looking specifically at uh, office workers, so most people hadn't uh, reported their office had changed due to spot hybrid. But interesting, when you look at the data, almost half of the, the respondents said actually they already had some kind of other task space. And by that, I mean, maybe kind of breakout areas, meeting spaces within their office. So it might be that some of these people are working in offices, which already give them something extra to help them maybe meet a bit more informally. And that's a big thing that we're seeing coming through from the interview work that we're doing and the engagement with employees and employers is this desire for a wider variety of space. So if we're bringing people back uh, to work hybrid, so maybe only part of the time in the office, then actually what people need is subtly different. So people are saying, oh, I've really missed that chance to reconnect. So looking for more social space. Or, you know, the thing that we really struggle with is gathering together and looking at shared documents or images or, or working together at the same time in the same space. So wanting project spaces or meeting space which have more IT kit in it to do that kind of work. So we're seeing differences in, in terms of what people think the office is, is there to do. So a bit of a, a shift from thinking about it is lots of individual desks and much more around are there different types of spaces we need to get our job done. So obviously there is this um, drive from the government and some of the media 
to push the back to office mm -hmm. campaign. What do you really make of that? Uh, first, I say we're, we're very grateful to the government and the UK uh, Research Councils for funding our current project. So thank you, ESRC. That said, yeah, so big government campaign to, um, to push people back into the office, particularly in, in the summer. I think it's interesting seeing that the, the language has changed a bit. They don't seem to be quite so vocal around that because I think we're, we're seeing, uh, obviously, transport is a, is a concern for people being on public transport together and potentially also an infection risk. I think it's so so difficult. I think it would be unwise to push people to come back to the office just for the sake of it. We know from our research, from lots of other research that's been going on over the, the past six, 12 months in particular, that there's an awfully large proportion of, of office workers who feel they're as productive at home. Give a little bit of a, a, a kind of a caveat to that. So it's self-reported productivity. So got to take that with a pinch of salt because I may feel I'm as productive, but I might be impacting other people. So I think this is one of the tensions we see a lot when you talk to organisations and employees is what might work best for me as an individual. So I might be super focused at home so I don't have all these interruptions from others. I can focus down, get my job done. But all those interruptions might be things that are helping others complete their tasks, might be dependent on me, might be the people I line manage who are really annoying. They keep needing advice and sign off, but they're stuck without that. So we've got this kind of tension between what works best for an individual, what works best for others. And it might be my individual productivity comes at the cost of maybe the overall firm's productivity or my department or my team. And that's one of the challenges that people have got in terms of how do we resolve that tension. It's interesting you say about um, productivity and for, say, a firm as a whole. Mm. I mean, I've, I've always worked in a creative environment and some of the most creative things that happen don't come from a meeting. It's come from two people who get up from their desk to get a cup of tea together in the office and it just sparks conversation. Oh, I saw this thing. Can I just have a chat? Should we grab a cup of tea? Yeah. It's that conversation. Is that the thing that we're going to lose? And I guess the secondary question for that would be, uh, you know, are we just sort of seeing the end of nine to five? Is, it, is, is that it now? Is it, has Dolly Parton had a day? Is, is that the end of it? <laughs> I love it. There's a couple of really, I think, really important things in there. The, the nine to five, let, let's take that first. So um, hybrid working doesn't necessarily, let's say hybrid um, or home working as opposed to traditional office working. So we're seeing there's two things here. So one is where you work and we're seeing differences between companies and organisations around the, the choice and the level of control you have over that. So some people are now being told you're permanently working from home. That shift's happened, yeah? So maybe great for some people, not great for others. Okay, people have different needs, preferences and so on. Um, other people have been told, no, you've got to be back full-time in the office. And then people in between who might be allowed to work part uh, home, part office. For that group of workers... Some people have flexibility over which days do I come in. Other people are being told, no, you're limited to at most two days a fortnight or you have to be on these set days. So there's control for some, flexibility for some, not for others. And then there's the other thing, which is the working hours. So you might be being told um, you have to come in on certain days, but you can come in actually any time that you like, avoid the rush hour and so on. Um, other people are still being locked into a vague kind of firm routine. And it, it doesn't necessarily break down neatly by industry either. There's a whole load of variation here. So there's flexibility over your work, where you work, flexibility over the times that you work, um, and not everybody's getting the, the same deal here. So I think you just need to be a little bit, little bit careful on that. But yeah, so exactly. So that, that kind of in-person, those kind of off-the-cuff kind of uh, moments, um, often they get called water cooler moments. So you bump into people, uh, maybe people who aren't in your team. Um, or things that happen before or after a meeting. And we know those are usually where the most important decisions get made. 
So the water cooler moments, that's really hard to recreate online. And we know that's really hard to recreate online. And one of the pushes for coming back to the office has been, and we've seen people like James Dyson and others saying, we need to come back to the office for innovation to happen. Well, that's not universally accepted, but you need to work a lot harder to, to basically engineer those chance moments, which sounds kind of counterintuitive. But there's kind of online virtual environments that allow you to bump into people now with avatars. You've got firms experimenting with kind of social hours, deliberately mixing up, doing kind of lottery of, of, um, of Zoom or team meetings. So you log on and you meet somebody new, you didn't know who it was going to be. It's all a bit forced. So it's different to that kind of really chance uh, set of encounters. The other thing then as well is that, that meeting side of things. So if, if we're looking at how do we, we deal with that, we've got a challenge here as well. If we're moving towards a, a situation where um, we might be hybrid a lot of the time, so a mix of home and uh, in the office, then we might find we've got people joining virtually. Well, how do they get included in that before the meeting officially starts kind of conversation and after people leave? And what happens if the person who's choosing to join the meeting virtually is the most senior one who's probably going to make the decision? They might actually find that you start to, to kind of miss out on those because the right people aren't in the room or vice versa. The people who are making the decisions are having a private chat online on the, the kind of chat function. We're in a really difficult, I think, time for firms of trying to work out how do we design things to give people choice and flexibility, which we know people respond well to. It's good for our well-being, for our work-life balance um, and actually to retain people as well. How do we do it in a way that doesn't mean that we're having lots of empty office space? And how do we also do it in a way that we're not excluding people? And I think this question of diversity and inclusion starts to come in. And I think there's some worrying kind of um, figures we're seeing from other research recently around the the proportion of women who aren't coming back into the office yet, not coming back to the workplace, uh, and maybe choosing to to work more from from home. Now, in some ways, that's good if that's helping people to to stay in the workforce, to balance uh, other responsibilities. Not great if that means that they're potentially going to be excluded from key decisions, meetings, opportunities. And I think that's something we, we're going to have to really think about over the next kind of six, 12 months. Thank you so much for, for joining us. I would love to have been a fly on the wall at the Leeds University Business School when you decided which working hours everyone was going to do. That must have been one heck of a conversation, Matthew. <laughs> oh, I, I wish we had any anything like that in terms of kind of uh, pre-planning for this. Um, so great to speak to you, Dr. Matthew Davis of the Leeds University Business School. Thanks for uh, giving us a little bit of a glimpse also into the future of how it all might look. Thanks for joining us. That's great. Thank you very much. Time for another interview with a famous face who once walked the halls of Leeds Uni. Ben Winston is a multi-award winning TV producer who got his start in broadcasting here at Leeds, graduating in 2004. He co-founded a production company just three years later and has gone on to work on some of the biggest gigs in TV, including the Brit Awards and the Grammys. Now he's in LA working on The Late Late Show with longtime collaborator James Corden. And I spoke to him during a very rare gap in his schedule. And as you'll hear, this interview was a little closer to home than normal. So this is a little bit of a strange one because normally if I was interviewing someone for Forever Leeds, I, I wouldn't know who they are. I wouldn't have met them. But Ben, we've known each other for a long time. So it's a slightly unusual. That's a sort of disclaimer from the start, really. Well, that's why I agreed to do it because I was just going to be able to catch up with my mate Rich. That's, that's, that's why we're here. So very lovely to speak to you. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, it's a pleasure. In terms of context, my wife and you were very old friends and you were living together at uni on Brudenell Road where I spent a lot of my uni as well because I'd started going out with her at the time. So it really does go back to university, which is the whole point of the podcast. Naomi, your wife, is one of my favourite people in the entire world. I don't know many people better than her. 
and we've been friends since we were three years old and so when you used to come over the first few months it was all like hmm what do we think is this guy okay is he gonna muck me around do we approve and uh, luckily we approved wholeheartedly and uh, we became friends. Now, if I didn't know you, I would give you a proper introduction. I don't think you should not get that simply on the basis that we know each other. So I'm still going to do the proper introduction anyway. As such, joining us, executive producer of The Late Late Show with James Corden, executive producer of Carpool Karaoke, executive producer of Friends, The Reunion, executive producer of The Grammys, amongst many, many other things. And this number might be changing all the time, but 28 is a 30-time Emmy nominee and 10-time Emmy winner. And most importantly, of course, University of Leeds graduate in broadcasting studies from 2004, Ben Winston. Now, that's the proper introduction, obviously. I loved it. Thank you. Is that the right amount of Emmys now? Is that the right amount of nominees? Have I, have I got that right? I don't know how many times I've been nominated. I think it's probably about right. I try to forget the ones that I've lost, but <laughs> I do have 10 Emmys. Yes, that is true. Uh, that's that's uh, bonkers to me because, uh, I yeah, that's simply insane, but it is lovely. I'm looking at them right now, actually. They look golden, beautiful. I was going to ask you that because I imagine if I'd won any Emmys, I would have them surrounding me in an office or wherever. You, I mean, no, you're you're in the morning there. We're in the evening here uh, in the UK. You're over in LA. But I would imagine I would surround myself with the Emmys if I'd won some. When we first came out here, James and I, which would have been nearly seven years ago now to start the Late Late Show, David Letterman, for me, the greatest talk show host of all time. And if anybody in the UK there or has followed American late night, they know who David Letterman is. When we first came out, we actually had to delay for two weeks before we were, we were supposed to go on air, I think March the 9th. We delayed till March the 23rd. And that night, David Letterman, our hero, went on air and he said, there must be a real problem over on that new show with that English guy because they're delaying by two weeks. I think there must be problems there. You know, who delays a TV show by two weeks? And of course, there weren't any problems. It was the network wanted us to delay by two weeks due to advertising and various different things. But it created a huge amount of press and publicity that was negative towards our show before we'd even started. I remember the Daily Mail ran a headline saying, you know, Letterman says there's problems at Corden. And so when he retired and he finished his show, uh, he had a piece of set behind him, which was the Brooklyn Bridge. And I've watched his show my whole life. I managed to get that piece of the Brooklyn Bridge and it's in my office. And it's an amazing piece of television memorabilia because it's the set from David Letterman. So on the one hand, I have it here because I absolutely love him and worship him. But on the other hand, the bridge is where I put my 10 Emmys. I do love him, though, just to clarify. There's no bad blood in any way, but it's but that's why they are on there. I just wonder, because I, I read back in, I think it was March it was, you did a an article in The Hollywood Reporter, and it was around the time you were doing the Grammys, and it was about sort of how your day was going to pan out that day. And I looked at it, I felt knackered reading it, mate. I mean, it was like a 5 a.m. start, and you said you nodded off past 1 a.m., and it was just meeting to meeting. And... I mean, what's your day looking like at the moment? Is it a bit calmer because you haven't got a Grammys going on or is it still the core, the late, late show to focus on and then all this other stuff going on around it? Yeah, I mean, look, days are busy. I'm never somebody who wants to focus on one project. I've learned that about myself. I like juggling different shows in different genres. So, you know, right now we are, we're planning for the Grammys. We've just taken over a reality show. There's a couple of music specials we're making. It sort of keeps my brain active. This is the job I've always wanted. You know, I went to Leeds, I studied broadcasting. Uh, you know, I didn't want to be an accountant. I didn't want to be a vet. I wanted to work in TV. You know, Friends Reunion, absolutely huge. Three men, three women, um, all pretty much living together. Essentially, you on Broodnell Road back in the day, there was... <laughs> 
three blokes and three three ladies there as well. Slightly different circumstances. I have to say, I've seen you do so many shows. I was nervous for you. I was nervous for you with that Friends reunion because I thought suddenly you're not taking initially your idea, let's say like carpool karaoke and putting it out there to the world. You're taking something which everyone feels is a part of them that like people are quite precious about that show, which is why it was so big. And I'm thinking to myself, all I want is for this to go really, really well for you. I want it to go really well. Of course it did. But did you feel going into that? Bloody hell, this is, it's more than just doing a show. It's like a responsibility almost. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's a really fair point because when you're creating something from new, ultimately, if it doesn't work, no one really knows about it because it's a show that didn't work. And if it didn't work, it means people didn't know about it. So therefore you can hide in your failures. Friends was, um, it was a lot of pressure. I, I definitely felt pressure on it, but I knew exactly what I wanted to do. I, I knew exactly what I wanted to film and... I was really excited to get those six characters back on that set. And I tried to drown out the noise because there was a lot of articles that were written about it saying, why are they doing this? Why aren't they bringing back a new episode of the sitcom? Who wants to see, you know, six 50 year olds get back in a room together? There was a, you know, I saw that sort of scrutiny of it. And of course, wherever I went, people went, oh, you're doing the Friends reunion. Oh my God, I can't wait for that. Because of the pandemic, we announced it, I think in like December, 2019. We were going to shoot it March 2020, but in the end, it, we didn't shoot it until April 2021, and then it aired, uh, I think, just before June 2021. So I lived with it for like two years, when actually it was supposed to be like a four-month job. In the end, it turned into a two-year job. And so that pressure sort of, on the one hand, it built because there was the expectation of it. But on the other hand, I became more and more confident as the two years went on because I had more and more time to prep and know exactly what I wanted to get and also to get to know the six cast members better. Because when it first started, I met them, I pitched to them one by one. I had their buy-in, but I didn't really know them. So I didn't really know what they were going to be like. And by the end of the pandemic, I'd got to know them so well over Zoom calls and just hanging out with them and whatever else that I sort of felt like, I know exactly what I'm going to get here and it's going to be good. And I was confident in the plan that I had. But yeah, there was, it's definitely the most scrutinized show I've ever done. And it's probably the most watched show I've ever done. I, maybe, well, I don't know, actually. Maybe Paul McCartney's Carpool and stuff. Has, you know, I, don't, I don't know how many people watched Friends thing. But it was definitely like the most prestigious. It was a big one, but it, was, it went okay, thank goodness. Just going back to uni for a bit, when you look back to Leeds Uni now, what are those things that stand out, those memories that you think back of everyone thinks back of their accommodation so there's the house but what are those other things that really stick out in your mind actually i'm going to link it to friends you know why i think friends is such a successful show the reason why i think friends is still successful to this day is there is a period in your life which i think is the sweet spot and the period in your life which i think is the sweet spot is when you have independence you've left home your mum and dad are no longer in charge of you but you also don't have that much responsibility you don't have kids, mortgages, a job that drags you down. And <laughs> essentially, that time in your life when your friends are your family is what the sitcom Friends is based on. And I think its popularity is because everybody either wishes they were back in those days or they're younger than that and they can't wait for those days. And for me, those years were leads. There I was out of school, out of living at home, uh, but before I had the responsibilities of family, kids, running a company, and it was a really joyful experience living in a town that 
is just a great town to be in. With a university that gave me a really good experience in making television with really great tutors and equipment and whatever else, but also making friendships and relationships that, you know, last a lifetime. And so, you know, when I look back at Leeds, it's the same way that I think people in a way view friends and love friends, because it is that time in your life that you're, I think, in a way most happy potentially not that I'm happier then and I'm, I'm happier now than I was then I don't mean I'm not trying to compare the times but but it is that wonderful time and I do look back on it really fondly everything from who we live with to the experience I got on that course I did I did broadcasting studies and what was great about that course was it was you got your hands dirty you picked up a camera you filmed stuff you edited stuff you had to work out if things worked you know you ran a studio you ran a control room a bit like I run every night now I've sat in the gallery now for 974 Late Late Shows. But the first time I sat in a gallery and ran it was at Leeds Uni. I also, I did read in an interview uh, as well that you'd said that, you know, you're turning 40 this year and that, you know, up and coming is not a phrase that can be used forever. Perhaps 40 is the cutoff point. I don't know whether that might be, but there might be someone listening to this studying broadcasting at University of Leeds or thinking of doing it who might be the next up and coming. So I guess my question for you would be, what would be your one piece of advice to that person who maybe when you're way past the up and coming stage, with all due respect, might be that person you're saying, that's the up and coming one now? You know what? I think about this a lot because often people ask me, you know, what advice would you give to an 18 year old version of yourself or somebody who wants to work in the industry? And it's and it's quite hard sometimes to think about what you do. And all, all I can think about is what I did. I engaged in every opportunity that I ever had to try and learn. So when I was 14, I would join the university college school, which was my school. I joined the Lighting Society. Geeky, I know, but it was fun. Every Thursday night, we'd light this jazz concert and I learned about lighting and I would climb up a ladder and I would go, oh, you know what? I, it's a bit blue. I want to make it a little bit more red and let's light the drums like that. And I got involved in that society. You know, when I hurt my back when I was 17, I was involved in an accident and I hurt my back and I couldn't do PE I couldn't play football anymore rather than just like sitting out of you know PE and games instead I said to the school can I go and get a job do some work experience in the evenings and and I went and worked at talk sport two afternoons and evenings a week and my job was literally just like getting people coffee and going down in the lift and picking up the celebrities and making small talk with them in my gap year before I went to Leeds rather than just like doing what my mates did, which was just like doing a world tour or traveling around Australia and America, I actually went and got a job for six months and was a runner on a TV show in Bristol called Teachers. And I didn't know anybody there, but I just went and got people coffee and studied directors and learned as best I could. And then you sort of fast forward to today, to what I'm doing today. And I'll be at the Grammys and I'll watch Bruno Mars and I'll be like, you know what, there's something that doesn't look right there. And I'll go, oh, I know. Do you know what? It's a bit too red. Let's put a bit more gold in the filter on the lights. And you'll go, how did I know that that would make it better? Oh, yeah, it's probably because when I was 14, I used to climb up a ladder and do that for a jazz concert at school. When I sit here every day and I make a show with James Corden, who is my best friend and the man who really is responsible for so much of my career, I owe him so much. The only way I met him was because on that first day on that job in Bristol, when I went up there in my gap year unpaid, I met him on day one because he had a small part as an actor and I was the runner and we recognized ambition in each other and we became firm friends. And now we run a company together with our other three mates, Leo, Ben and Gabe, and we do the Late Late Show every night. And so the only advice I can give anybody 
is to just keep their eyes and ears open at all times and never be afraid to ask a question, never be afraid to learn a bit more, never be afraid to go up to somebody and say hello and ask them what they do and use every opportunity that you've got. Because in today's modern technology, every single person has a better camera in their pocket than I did when I was at Leeds University using their equipment. And so there's no excuse to not make stuff, do stuff, meet people, get out there and see if it's for you and learn wherever you can. I'm grateful that we've potentially had the last ever chat with you as an up and coming producer and director. <laughs> so <laughs> the last true. part of that phase of your That's career, it. which is the defining <laughs> interview in my career. It's <laughs> the last interview before I was middle aged. Lovely speaking to you. I am up and coming until February. Um, but until that is point, that right? just yeah, until then, it. until then, Ben, you're a superstar. Lovely speaking to you. I know you've got to go. We could speak for absolutely hours, but it's been great. Thank you for being a part of things. Thanks for being on Forever Leads, pal. Thanks for having me. In modern times, it can be hard to figure out fact from fiction online. But over a hundred years ago, before social networks and fake news websites, two girls from Yorkshire fooled the country. Frances Griffiths and Elsie Ride claimed to see fairies in their garden and produced a number of photographs appearing to show them surrounded by fairies. The pictures even captured the imagination of Arthur Conan Doyle, the author of the Sherlock Holmes series. It wasn't until 1983 that the girls, now in their old age, admitted the pictures were fake. They're the subject of a Brotherton Library exhibition here at Leeds. Tom Davy of Leeds Student Radio has gone to try and unravel the mystery. Do you believe in fairies? Is a question I've never been asked personally, but a hundred years ago was on the tip of the nation's tongue. This was thanks to the work of Elsie Wright and Frances Griffiths, two young girls who were unintentionally responsible for one of the world's first prominent hoaxes. Their images of the Cottingley fairies fooled many across the nation, including the famous writer of Sherlock Holmes, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. It had all started when Frances got into trouble for coming home with wet shoes. When asked why she was playing by Cottingley Beck, Frances replied, I went to see the fairies. Her mother and aunt acted with disbelief, but Frances's cousin Elsie came to her aid. She said that she too had seen the fairies. A few days later, Elsie said they would prove their story if her father lent them his camera. Half an hour later, the girls returned with an exposed photographic plate. When Arthur Wright developed the negative, he was stunned to see the image of his niece surrounded by small winged figures. These were the fairies of Cottingley Beck. Or so the girls would say, for actually these photos were an early case of photo doctoring. Faking the photos was simple. Elsie used her artistic skills to draw fairy figures and cut them out. She then attached the figures to hat pins and posed with them in Cottingley Glen. And then she and Francis took the pictures. For three years, the photographs remained a puzzling family anecdote. Then, one evening in early 1920, Francis and Elsie's mothers attended a lecture about fairies at the Theosophical Institute in Bradford. They mentioned the photographs from three years earlier, which aroused considerable interest. By June, Edward L. Gardner, General Secretary of the English Theosophical Society, was showing copies of the negatives in his public lectures in London. Soon afterwards, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle asked to see them for an article he was writing in The Strand. It was from here that the photographs would receive national attention. And indeed, this attention would persist as I visited an exhibition in the Brotherton Library about the fairies, which explored the photographs, their creation, and their endorsement by the creator of Sherlock Holmes. 
I spoke to the curator of the exhibition, Dr. Merrick Burrow, and asked what first drew him to the story. Um, well, I'd, I'd heard about the Cottingley Fairies, um, I guess, from being a child. I, I can't remember the first time I'd heard about it, but I, I, I'm an English literature academic, and so Arthur Conan Doyle is one of my areas of research interest, and it was really via Conan Doyle um, that I first came to the Cottingley Fairies, um, mainly because it's one of those things that people are quite embarrassed about, I think. You know, it's a creature of Sherlock Holmes, and you know, the, it, you know, part of the interest of the story is how the creature of Sherlock Holmes could have been taken in by this hoax. And and as I started to look at it, it, it became more and more interesting to me because I suppose the main thing is that it became clear to me fairly quickly that it was a much more interesting story than I thought it was. That it was it was multi layered. Um, that it wasn't just that you know Conan Doyle in, in his dotage had sort of lost the plot a bit, but that actually it was much more kind of involved than that. And, 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 and it was a bigger story, you know, to turn from this kind of domestic prank really into a global cause celebre. And it's a hoax or, you know, a, an issue anyway that, that, you know, lasted for 60 years before the, uh, the Elsie Wright and, and Francis Griffiths, you know, finally publicly admitted that, uh, that they'd faked the fairy photographs. Indeed, it would seem that Conan Doyle was using the fairy photographs as ammunition to prove his beliefs in spiritualism. From his point of view, the, the fairies were really a means to an end. It was yeah, a staging post, really, for him onto you know, more important issues about um, revealing the, you know, the, the great revelation that uh, you know, there is this um, evidence of life beyond death and so forth, which is what he, you know, he, he felt was really important. In addition to the connection between the fairy photographs and spiritualism, it's also clear that the photos hold resonance as early examples of photo doctoring and hoaxing. In in a way, the history of photography is also the history of fake photography, you know, pretty much from the outset. But the thing that surprised me about it that I wasn't expecting um, was that when I found out that they aren't actually the original negatives, um, that, that they've been through a process of improvement and that we don't know where the original negatives are. Um, and, and that's part of the thing that really kind of got me interested in it was the sort of detective story in the background of what exactly had happened um, with the photographs because uh, Edward L. Gardner, who um, was the sort of Watson to Sher uh, Conan Doyle's Sherlock Holmes, if you like, um, um, had, had, you know, had some work done on these negatives to improve them, in inverted commas. To explore this idea further, I spoke to John Corner, a professor at the University's School of Media and Communication. He highlighted some of the similarities between the Cottingley fairy case and more recent examples of fake news. Well, I think uh, Cottingley is it's part of a history that shows that hoaxes can work, uh, provided mm. the right conditions are there. One is a good level of publicity, um, which the, the fairies got. Uh, the second is celebrity endorsement. Uh, yes. still very important, and the fairies got it. And then, um, very much uh, important, uh, as a third point, enough people um, out there who want to believe it. And, and that's what the Cottingley fairies got. And that's what a lot of modern fake news gets. I think it's an important point, though, to note that the hoax idea suggests a joke, uh, mm. the, tr the truth of which will eventually be revealed. Um, but actually, of course, much fake news has serious interests in long-term deception. And I think one of the fascinating things about the Cottingley case is that it did seem to start off as a hoax, 
but actually mm. um, turned into something much more um, seriously to do with misinformation and deception. <laughs> Despite their use as a hoax or as a depiction of a precursor to modern fake news, it's clear that the photographs are aesthetically pleasing works of art, and the girls who created them were extremely talented. So, to return to our original question, do I believe in fairies? No. However, the Cottingley fairies certainly have an interesting story to tell. Leeds was founded on the belief that universities should be open to all talented students. Scholarships, funded by alumni and supporters, enable students, who might have not been able to take up their place without financial support, to overcome barriers to education and make the most of their time at Leeds. Uh, we're speaking now to three Leeds students who've all benefited from a scholarship to find out more about their journey to Leeds and the impact alumni support has had on their life at university. So um, let's meet them all. In fact, do you, do you want to introduce yourselves? Maybe just tell you, you can tell us your name or what you've been studying. So hi, um, my name is Pearls. I'm a second year law student and I'm really excited to be here today. Hello, uh, I'm Ben. So I've been here since 2015. I did my undergrad here in food science um, and now I'm doing a PhD. Hi, my name's Russell. I've started here in 2018 and I've come through from the Lifelong Learning Centre and I'm now doing a master's. Fantastic. Well, thanks for all for joining us on, on Forever Leads. It's lovely to see you all. Russell, let's just start with you because the pandemic obviously forced lots of students to be studying online. So how how was that for you? You've been through this over the last few years. How's it all been? Has it been all right? Uh, a culture shock. Yeah. <laughs> we'll call it a culture shock. But no, it was quite interesting. Uh, once we got past the initial technical hiccups, got into, you know, the new way of doing things. But interesting, informative, very, very different, but very interesting. Yeah. So obviously you're doing a dissertation and uh, it's on educational policies in Japan between 1930 to 1945. Quite an interesting time, actually. Mm. It was a time of huge upheaval in the country. So how do you think that affected the nation's schools? Oh, it's a very interesting topic. That one, that's why I wrote a dissertation on it. <laughs> seconds. Oh, no, don't do that to me. Don't do that to me. No, um, I think it had a big effect. It's, there's a lot of parallels I draw between that and modern-day schooling systems, how you get a how sort of national policy a national outlook and national beliefs affect how people, school people, how, how, how that knowledge is transferred, how that interest is brought up, how a nation shapes and grows. And that's the reason I did it. It was a very, very interesting way of doing it. But, yeah, I'd say it had a very big effect on the nation, and it's something I'm looking to follow up on in this year's master's degree, so I'm excited to do that. You're a mature student, Russell. Uh, <laughs> uh, the scholarships obviously helped you out with that. How, how did it actually help you in terms of practically for, for your work? Oh, uh, well, I come from a very <laughs> a very affluent background, so it paid for a lot of stuff, books, you know, textbooks, travel and all that. But I will say in this last year, my financial situation has changed quite dramatically. So it is without no uncertain terms to say that without that scholarship, I wouldn't be at university this year. Or like I say, you know, I wouldn't be here. That's how important it is and how very grateful I am to receive it. Yeah. Pearls, let, let's just uh, find about what, what you're doing, because I'd love the sound of what you're doing. I've got no idea what it is. Right, I'll just say that from the start, so you can, you can explain it a bit. The concept of gamifying learning. <laughs> Talk us through that. Yeah, so I'm one of the recipients of the Laidlaw Scholarship, which was founded by an alumnus of the university, um, Lord Laidlaw. And as part of that, I had to um, take part in a six-week research project. It was supposed to be about multi-academy trusts 
And from that, you could kind of choose to sort of look at a particular area um, of that broad topic. And I chose to look at what impact gamifying learning could have on enhancing the educational experiences of um, BAME students. So when I talk about gamifying learning, I'm talking more about having fun with games, um, like having fun with like learning and making it more engaging for students, um, whether that is through having sort of activities that students do in the classroom or um, whether it's kind of either having a point system to tests or something like that, just something that engages students in a way that will help them to kind of view learning as something exciting exciting and less like a chore. So that's what I kind of looked at. You are a first generation student at the university and you have co-founded the 93 Club, 93% Club, which is a social mobility organization. How did that come to fruition? How, what are you doing with the organization now? Yeah, so um, the 93% Club was founded at the University of Bristol by a lady called uh, Sophie Pender. So she founded it off the back of realising that there was a space there for students who needed, like, kind of support being first-generation um, state-educated students. So off the back of that, more sort of universities sort of started making their own versions of that. Um, and Leeds is just the latest one of branches of the 93% Club, which is now also a charitable foundation. And my role specifically is I am the Education Outreach Officer so my job is to kind of reach out to secondary schools in the West Yorkshire area to see whether we can kind of collaborate with them, introduce them to um, the work of the 93% Club and hopefully give potential future lead students, allow them to kind of know that there is support out there uh, for them when they do choose to come to university. Ben, uh, you're doing a PhD in food science at the moment. First person in your family to go to uni? Uh, yeah, first person to do A-levels undergrad and a phd <laughs> how's that. that how's that then yeah no it's it's really it's really interesting like my parents don't have no idea what i'm doing <laughs> <laughs> well I, to be honest with you i read through some of the phd stuff and i've got no idea what you're doing in that either it sounds fascinating the kind of stuff that you're, you're researching into talk talk us through a little bit about what you've been doing yeah so essentially um i'm basically looking at food proteins and fat replacement and also i'm looking at artificial saliva for uh, patients with dry mouth disease and also the issue with plant proteins being not very nice texturally that, that, sorry just, that's just my mind being blown oh. uh, just by, <laughs> like what that's that's amazing um that's quite a lot of research to do yeah i love it like i've always uh, absolutely I've just been fascinated with uh, how what we eat is basically we are everything what we eat. As a child, I was quite uh, big and overweight and I didn't know why that was. So that's always been my dedication, you know, the whole, I guess, the whole mental health issue with being so overweight. And um, that sort of drove me, I guess, and discovering all about food. And now, well, now I'm doing fat replacement <laughs> technology. So it's really cool. <laughs> well, your research sounds fascinating. And uh, I know that you've are looking to create artificial saliva for people with uh, dry mouth disease. Rich and I don't know much about this, I'm guessing. Can you explain that? I am that? very well versed in that, actually. Uh, no, 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 nothing about it. <laughs> Globally, you know, the, I mean, especially in the UK, the elderly population is growing and um, a very large proportion of uh, these people basically can't produce saliva and they can't produce enough of it. Without saliva, your tongue is as rough as sandpaper. Um, so, you know, imagine eating, speaking, 
uh, living on a day-to-day basis, it's going to be tremendously difficult if you don't have saliva. So in Leeds, we are seeing some absolutely phenomenal results. Um, there's potential for patents. Uh, we're working with a company to try and get it mass-produced. So it's, yeah, it's really exciting. I was just going to ask you uh, around uh, and all of you really the stuff that you've been able to get involved in outside from a research point of view or from a course point of view because uni is about that work is also about uni life and uni experience. Russell what have you what have you managed to to soak in to do to to take from your experiences? I think most of what I've got from university is more personality based. I'm very much an introvert very much an introvert so um, I started off in first year at the LLC doing something called a learning champion. So you go out to the community, go out the virtues of being a mature student and all this. And those are the skills I've sort of picked up. And I've been doing that. I think I did a session the other week. So, you know, another shameless plug out to the LLC there. I keep trying to get them in somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, that's what I picked up more. How to, how to be comfortable with yourself and how to project yourself and how to share what you are and what you've learned with other people. That's probably the most important thing I've learned at university. Yeah, and what what are the stuff of uh, you guys been getting involved in? Whether it's been societies or kind of outside of your your courses, what have you been doing? I can take this one. So I joined the tennis society, the um, taekwondo society, and the ballet society. Um, these are sports that I um, had no previous experience in. I would never like sit here and say like I'm going to be the next Serena Williams or anything like that. I just thought, <laughs> you know, after kind of a year and a bit of not being able to do anything, I like kind of reveled at the opportunity to just pick up something new to to enjoy and to kind of do outside of my studies i mean this is my seventh year of uni <laughs> um, and so there's a lot there's a lot to get through so i'll summarize it so i think since being here i've been in over 20 societies and um, i've been vice president of food science and the social sec of wine society um, that sounds I'm, like a terrible uh, thing to have to get involved <laughs> Yeah. I'm now rowing captain for beginners, um, men, done swimming coaching as well. And uh, this is, this is. I mean, as, as coming from a poor background, I never had opportunities growing up. And, you know, this is what the scholarship gave me. It gave me the funding to be able to do all these amazing things and find out what, what all my passions in life. And, yeah, I mean, now I'm, you know... I don't know, I do sort of regret getting up at 5am for rowing on Mondays, but, um, you know, I just absolutely love it. You do a bit of painting as well. Yes, yeah, actually, yeah. I um, that's It's one of my massive passions in life and something that I use a lot to uh, deal with um, emotions, I guess. If, if ever I'm stressed, like I just whip out a paintbrush and uh, paint. Um, it's something I want to do later on, perhaps in life. And not necessarily Have you noticed a theme over the seven years? Or is it just me? Wine, swimming, <laughs> rowing, paint, artificial saliva. It's just all wet stuff. Just every, every, it's, that's what it is. Just anything that involves, like, wow. yeah, liquid. I never actually realised so that. Just when you've done the list there, I'm like, it's just all liquid-based activities. You know what? I, I don't know. I, I've never thought of that. <laughs> well, there you go. See what your next one. You need to find a very dry one next time is what you need to do. Yeah, maybe rock climbing or something. Something like that, exactly. Um Thank you so much for, for joining us on the podcast and having a bit of a chat. I know you've all really benefited from the, the scholarship and you can just hear from you talking about it and the enthusiasm, how much that's, uh, that's benefited you. Thank you for sharing us a bit of an insight into uh, your time here at University of Leeds. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks so much. Thank you. 
And that's the end of this edition of Forever Leads. We hope you've enjoyed listening. As we heard in today's episode, students like Pearls and Russell can face lots of barriers getting to Leeds, with many unable to take up their place without financial support. Because of this, they can struggle to have the same incredible Leeds experience that so many alumni, like you, are proud of. Visit give.leeds.ac.uk and find out how you can make an investment in the next generation of Leeds alumni. Your generosity will help us to create an enriching environment for our students to learn and build upon the sector-leading support which the university offers to help students overcome personal and financial barriers and thrive here at Leeds. That's the end of the podcast. Thanks for listening to Forever Leads from me, Alba Guskova. And from me, Rich Williams. We'll see you next time. Forever Leads was presented by Rich Williams and Alba Guskova. Produced by Andrew Harrison. Audio package by Tom Davey. Special thanks to Becca Morrison and all at Leeds Student Radio. Audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Forever Leads is a Podmasters production for Leeds University Alumni Department.